0: Uh, Why don't I pray, and then we'll get into this passage. So, Father, thank you so much for uh, this time that we have together, uh, this time where we can bring our concerns, our worries, our cares to you, uh, this time where we're lifted up by the good news of the gospel, um, and I pray that uh, you would meet with us in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, Some of you know this about me, I've talked about this before in sermons, and what I'm about to tell you is something that the mean people among you might weaponize against me, and I'm just telling you this, I'm being very vulnerable here, okay? So it will not be funny to weaponize this against me, okay? I have a particular strange, irrational fear, and it is a fear of the condiment mayonnaise, Um, It is a genuine fear. I can't walk down the aisle in the grocery store where there is mayonnaise. I cannot be around it. Uh, So much so that um, maybe almost a year ago, I was having lunch with somebody, uh, a new friend that I just met, um, and he's a professional counselor. And so he deals with people that have issues like this all the time. And so we were having lunch just up the street over here on Glendale Boulevard, and I ordered my lunch, and I must have talked to the waitress long enough that... um, She walks away, and I'd ordered my sandwich, and I probably was asking lots of questions about what comes on it and making lots of statements about what I didn't want on the sandwich and what she needed to make sure wasn't on there. She walks away, the professional counselor looks at me, the very first thing he says, he goes, you have of mayonnaise, don't you? And I was like, is it that obvious? He goes, even somebody who wasn't a counselor would know. and so but here's the point a skilled physician actually can spot the kinds of things that maybe we can't identify on our own and of course I already knew I had this fear but the point remains a skilled physician a skilled counselor a psychologist they can spot something wrong in our bodies they can spot something wrong in our minds and our emotions often before we can spot it ourselves And the reason is they have an intimate working knowledge of how the body, how the mind, how the emotions of a person, how they're supposed to work. So they know what is healthy and what is right. Uh, And so for example, a person is not supposed to be deathly afraid of a condiment and a counselor can spot that immediately. They know what it is to be healthy and what it is to be unhealthy. Now, At the end of today's passage, the one that we're looking at, it actually is the saying of Jesus where our whole series that we're doing right now gets its name, uh, gets its title, and the main idea. And it's this in verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And so the series that we're in, which is a recurring series that we kind of jump in and out of throughout the year, uh, is called The Great Physician. And it's based on an old book by one of my favorite authors, G. Campbell Morgan, who called it also The Great Physician. And what Morgan did in that book is he looked at 52 episodes of The Life of Jesus, where Jesus interacted with individuals. And what he observed is this. On the one hand, Jesus treats every single individual the same. Uh, they were, and there, there are, uh, commonalities to every single person, and so Jesus treated them in that way, he treated them as a common person. But on the other hand, what Morgan observed after looking at all of this was that Jesus never treated any individual exactly the same as the last, that he was personal, that he knew exactly the needs of each individual, and he met those needs specifically, individually. And so we're looking at that to see just how it is that Jesus might treat you and I. And so, as Jesus says, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Now, the interesting thing is, you know, we've had that passage read to us, we've looked at it. There is no mention of anyone who's sick in this passage. It doesn't mention a sick person. Uh, nobody who needs a doctor. And yet, Jesus refers to himself as the great physician, Which means Jesus is quite obviously using a metaphor here. And the metaphor actually has to do with a person's spiritual sickness. Now, it's true that Jesus does a lot of healing of people's bodily sicknesses, you know, their their brokenness, their, their physical ailments. He even raises a few people from the dead. And yet what this passage indicates is that though those are real healings. And those healings and those being raised from the dead, they made a profound impact on the lives of those who were healed. But what this is showing us is that those healings were always meant to point to something more profound. In fact, something more universal than just a person's physical health. And what he's talking about is a spiritual sickness that is common to every single person who's ever been born. Because look at the very next thing he says in verse 17. He says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners." Now, sin is what the Bible talks about as this universal sickness common to every person. But actually, it's worse than that. The Bible says it's actually worse than, than just sickness because, in one place, it says that every single human being that has ever been born, it says, is born dead in our sin. And what Jesus is saying here, the statement that he's making here, is that he came to deal with that that sickness. And so let's look at this passage and see how the great physician deals not only with our temporary physical sickness, but with our ultimate spiritual sickness. And we're going to look at this in three parts as he meets this man named Levi. So part one, Jesus sees him. Part two, Jesus calls him. And then part three, he befriends him. So part one, Jesus sees him. Now, as you look at this, in verse 13, Mark sets up a contrast immediately. It says, once again, Jesus went out beside the lake a large crowd came to him and he began to teach them. And so what we're talking about is a crowd, a large crowd, probably dozens, maybe hundreds of people all coming to Jesus. They're drawn to him. They're gathering around Jesus. They're all making their way to be near him. And so these are the people that you could say, these are the religious seekers. These are the people that are wanting in one way or another to get closer to God, to know God better, to follow him more closely. These are people that want to get close to God. And as this is going on, in the, the main sweep of, of the way that Mark is telling the life of Jesus, uh, what you've seen up to this point is that Jesus is on the lookout for a few followers that he's going to call to be his close followers, his 12 disciples. And so he's already called some of them. And so as you're reading this and this crowd comes, you might begin to think, okay, out of this crowd, he's going to find some. You know, he, he's going to find somebody. And so Mark is setting up for us this, this contrast that there is a crowd of great candidates. Amazing people who could become one of his twelve disciples, people that are seeking after God, people wanting to get close to Jesus. And so Jesus has the pick of the crowd. You know, the religious spiritual seekers. He he could center in on any one of the individuals in the crowd. And yet notice the contrast that Mark sets up. He focuses Jesus focuses not on someone in the crowd, but somebody outside the crowd. He sees, well, it says verse 14 that, that he saw, verse 14, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. And just in that one sentence, that one really short sentence, Mark indicates two things, uh, and just that one sentence that would suggest from our point of view that Levi is the least likely candidate in the whole story to become one of the disciples. Number one, he's not part of the crowd, he's at work, he's, he's not seeking Jesus, he's at work. Number two, his work is that of a tax collector uh, and we'll get onto what that means later but what this means is Jesus sees something in Levi that nobody else sees he sees something in Levi that nobody else sees um, I think I've talked about this before too but as I, was, I grew up in the Chicagoland area during the Chicago Bulls dynasty um, six championships, sorry Lakers fans, I think you have more but whatever we had Michael Jordan and uh, as we're growing up in that era, uh, every kid my age was obsessed with basketball, every single one. And so seventh grade comes around. That's the first opportunity you have to join a basketball team. And so I try out. And uh, I barely make the team. In fact, I, I think it's one of those, like they don't cut anybody, but they didn't tell us that, because they're like, we're going to put out the list of who makes the team so everybody feels like they made it. But if you really read, you'd find out that nobody got cut anyway. I was a bench warmer on the B team. So you have the A team, and they're the good ones, and they went undefeated for like 7th and 8th grade. I was on the B team. We won two games in the entire two years that we existed as a B team, okay? And I came off the bench on that team. That's how bad I was. Freshman year rolls around. I'm like, okay, you know, I went to some basketball camps in the summer. Surely I've gotten better. I go, I travel for the basketball team, made the B team. bench warmer on the B team freshman year. Sophomore year, I'm like, okay, you know, junior varsity team, Last chance, if I don't make, because there's no B team, so if I don't make the junior varsity team, then that's, my career is over. And so I go to tryouts, and I, did, I thought fairly well, actually, but I don't know. I was like, I'm slow and uh, not very good. And we're having this meeting at the end of tryouts. The, the head varsity coach brings everybody in, freshman all the way through senior, brings everybody into a classroom, and he's given that sort of Friday night lights, you know, you know get you excited speech. And he's like, you know, some of you sophomores, you're going to be on the varsity team this year. I and mean, then he singles, right, singles me out. He goes, Ken, you're on the varsity team. And I, I, like, audible gasps in the room, people fainting, not understanding what's happening. I didn't, I was like, did, did, I, hear, did I hear I'm on the varsity team or did I hear I'm the varsity water boy? Like, which, which one is it? Like, But the point is, that coach saw something in me that nobody else saw. He saw something in me that even I didn't see. And this is the, something of what happens to Levi. Jesus sees something in Levi that no one, not even Levi himself, sees. In fact, over in Luke's account, uh, Luke tells this exact same story, uh, almost word for word, but he uses a different word to describe how Jesus sees him. In Luke chapter 5, verse 27, where it says Jesus saw Levi, he uses a different word, and the word there for saw is actually the word beheld. Jesus beheld him. And so that word in the ancient world actually meant to discern something. You know, and to discern something, that's to perceive it. That's to, to realize or to understand something about the nature of that thing. And so in other words, Jesus discerned Levi. He understood him. He saw something in him. So who is Levi? Well, Levi, we saw already, is a tax collector. And in ancient Israel, to be a tax collector is to be a traitor. It's to have turned your back on your own people, uh, to take their money, to give it to Rome, who's occupying you, who nobody in the nation wants occupying them. And in addition to that, it was common practice for tax collectors to sort of skim off the top, to overcharge on the taxes, give Rome what they're asking for, and then keep a little bit extra for yourself. And so in this ancient world, a tax collector is, uh, is, is the worst of the worst. And in fact, within that culture, most of the, the Jews would look at them and say their standing before God is the same as that of a murderer, of a thief, and of a prostitute. That essentially what it meant was the tax collector had no standing before God. That if they stood before God, they stand condemned. And yet, look at this contrast that Mark is drawing out for us. Jesus leaves the crowd of spiritual seekers, the crowd of people who were seeking him, the crowd of people who were the ideal candidates to be his disciples, and he sees, he beholds Levi. So remember what we're doing in the series. We're looking at Jesus' method with individuals. So what does that tell us about Jesus? What's his method here? Well, it tells us that Jesus sees in the individual what no one else, maybe not even you, can see. Now, Levi's story is that he goes on to be an apostle. He actually becomes one of the authors of the New Testament. He wrote the book of Matthew. Jesus saw him as who he would be. And here's what I think that tells us, that Jesus doesn't see you as you are today. He sees you as you will be. God lives outside of time. And so he sees you as you will be. He sees you as a person full of compassion, full of wisdom, full of faith, a person full of the fruit of the Spirit, full of love and patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. But he also sees you, and he, just as he saw Levi, he sees you. he does see you as you are today. He sees Levi as sick and needing a doctor, a sinner needing to be called, And so he sees you as both. Martin Luther had a way of describing this, and he called it simultaneously uh, sinful and righteous. That God sees you both at the same time. And so this is part one. Jesus sees him. He beholds him. He sees you. He beholds you. He understands you. And he understands you're needing to be called. And so that's part two. Jesus calls him. So verse 14, follow me, Jesus told him. And then Levi got up and followed him. Now, if you're like me, you read the story, and you're like, wait a second, I'm sorry, what? <laughs> he just gets up and follows him? And over in Luke's account, it actually stresses the idea that Levi gets up and it says he leaves everything and follows him. Now, remember, Levi's a tax collector. Does that mean he left some of that money behind in the booth? I have no idea, but it says he leaves everything and follows him. So Luke stresses that this is extraordinary. Now, what is happening here? You know, is Jesus exercising some sort of Jedi mind trick? You know, these are not the droids you're looking for. Or is there something else happening? Well, Jesus isn't a Jedi, just in case you need to know that. You can write that down in your notes. Jesus, not a Jedi. There's, there must be something else that's going on, and here's what it is. Here's the other thing that's going on. In ancient Jewish culture, every young boy went to school to learn the scriptures, what we call the Old Testament. And they would often memorize entire portions of the Torah, which are the first five books of the Bible. And most boys would do that all the way up to the age of 18, uh, or sorry, up to the age of 13. Um, and when they, if they were really good at 13, if they really knew the scriptures, if they were, their teachers were really impressed with them, uh, then they would say, hey, don't go learn the family trade yet. Come and learn a little bit more. And so they would spend another five years studying the scriptures even more. Uh, and then from there, at 18, the very best of the very best of those students would end up studying further by becoming a disciple to a rabbi, an apprentice. And the way that would work is, so, so say you're a student and you've made it all the way through. You're 18 years old, you've studied the scriptures now your entire life. And what a student would do is, is they would uh, go and apply to a rabbi, much the same way that, you know, you might apply to a college or to a job. You know, you you put your best foot forward, you give them all the best stuff, and you say, hey, can I, will you accept me? So we present ourselves to them. And so the best of the best would go to a rabbi, they'd put their credentials in front of the rabbi, and if the rabbi thought they were good enough, the rabbi would say these very specific words. The rabbi would say, follow me. Very specific words, follow me. Follow me. It's the same words that Jesus uses when he calls his disciples, when he comes across Peter and Andrew, the young fisherman, what does he say? He says, Come, follow me. When he calls James and John and so on, when he calls his disciples, he says, Follow me. Now there's a difference with Jesus, who by this time is clearly becoming a well-known rabbi, the kind of teacher who draws a crowd of potential followers. So he's he's well known at this point, at least in the region where he lives. And usually in this time, the student would seek out the rabbi, not the other way around. Rabbis didn't go out looking for students. Students would come and apply to the rabbi. Uh, You might even assume that some in this crowd that are there on that day, they are students who want to follow Jesus. They want to present themselves to Jesus for him to say to them those words, come and follow me. And yet, who does Jesus say it to? Who does he come to? He says, follow me to Levi, a tax collector, a sinner, someone who's not in the crowd. And so why does Levi get up, leave everything, and follow him? It's because in Levi's culture, where everyone, including him, by the way, would have spent years studying the Bible, maybe dreaming of becoming a rabbi one day, to be called by a rabbi, to be the rabbi's disciple, that is the most prestigious thing you can get in that time. It would be like Spielberg or Nolan coming to you and saying, "Come be my assistant director. I'm going to teach you everything I know." You know, it's getting the acceptance letter from Stanford. Only in this case you didn't seek them, they found you. And so this is I think the reason that Levi is willing to get up and leave everything to follow him. It's not a Jedi mind trick. It's an honor. It's prestigious. But I want you to notice something about this calling that Levi receives, because the calling actually gives him a brand new identity. And that identity works itself out in two different ways, Uh, two vocations, you might call it. Calling is just another word for vocation. Um, It's a purpose in life. And we see this calling, this vocation, this identity emerge through a new name. Now remember, there's three actual parallel accounts to this story. Uh, It's told almost word for word in all three accounts, in, in the book of Matthew, the book of Mark, and the book of Luke. Uh, It's almost word for word in those three accounts. Uh, Both Mark and Luke call him Levi. Why do they do that? Because that's his name. Pretty obvious. But over in Matthew, look at this. Exact same story, told almost word for word, but this time it's actually autobiographical. Because both Mark and Luke call him Levi, but look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 9. We can put that one on the screen. Um, And remember, we're talking about the same man in all three stories. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, I think this is extraordinary, because Matthew's writing this at the end of his life, and actually what he's telling you is that he sees his identity working itself all the way back to when Jesus called him. So Levi is given this new name. And we don't know exactly when it happens, but we assume the name was given to him by Jesus, much the same way he renamed Simon to become Peter, James and John, the Sons of Thunder. Uh, The names that Jesus gave were given in order to give that person a new identity, a new understanding of who they are. Because in that culture, your name meant something. You know, Ken doesn't mean anything. Actually, it does. It means something in another language, which is kind of embarrassing. But your name meant something in that culture. It said something about your character. It said something about your accomplishments in life. And so last week when I was in Montana trying to catch fish, which again I caught none, not one fish, um, I did one day go to the site of the Battle of Little Bighorn. Do you remember that from history class when you are in elementary school? Custer's Last Stand. And on the battlefield there's a monument to the Native American warriors who, who fought all those years to keep their way of life. Um, and the, uh, it's not a list of people who died, but a list of warriors, people who, who fought. And, Uh, The names—they're all translated into English—and I was reading them. I spent quite a bit of time just reading. There's a whole bunch of these names, and they're incredible. And I was struck by the way that their names were either a way of describing that person's character or describing something they would accomplish. And so there were some names uh, that were extraordinary, like Brave Wolf. That's a great name, Brave Wolf. Uh, Or Walks with the Stars. You know, that's quite a lofty name, isn't it? Wouldn't you like to be called Walks with the Stars? Uh, or Hunts the Enemy. That's a good name. You, you want to be friends with Hunts the Enemy, not enemies with Hunts the Enemy. <laughs> However, as you read it, you could tell that uh, these people had quite the sense of humor as well, and so there are some names that weren't so flattering. Uh, some like, uh, these are some of my favorite, Noisy Walking. That's a good one. Uh, hunts the Enemy does not get along with Noisy Walking. They don't do things together. Uh, I identify with this one, afraid of eagles. You know, I can imagine an eagle, we actually saw there was an eagle like soaring above us while we ate lunch one day, and you can imagine afraid of eagles like ducking behind a bush as that happens. Um, this one, not so great, looks like a dog. Uh, I think you get this one immediately, skunk guts. And then actually my favorite, my favorite of all of them, uh, was Long name. Long name, because he must have had so many character qualities or so many things that they just got tired of saying them all, so they're like, your name now is just long name. I love it. (laughs) Well, in much the same way, Levi is renamed something that speaks to his character. And so Matthew is his new name, and that name actually means the gift of God or somebody who gives God. And here's what I think his name was meant to signify. It's a total 180-degree turn from his old identity to his new one. Because think about what his job was. What did he do? He was a tax collector. What did he do in his job? All he did was take. All he did was take from people. He took, and he took, and he took, and he took. He was not a giver. He was a taker. His entire life was centered around taking. But now he has a new identity, and now he is called Matthew, the gift of God, or the giver of God. And he eventually becomes God's biographer, giving the world the story of the life of Jesus. And we actually see him, and we'll talk about this in a minute, but he immediately begins to live out this new identity, because what does he do? He immediately invites all of his friends to his house. He gives them a meal. He gives them an introduction to Jesus. Now again, we don't know exactly when Jesus gives him this name. But it was sometime between what we're reading in Mark chapter 2 and Mark chapter 3. Uh, In Mark chapter 3, Jesus formally calls 12 of these followers to be his closest disciples. Uh, You can look at that, uh, Mark chapter 3, he he actually gives the names of all 12 disciples. And over there, uh, remember, Mark has just called him Levi in chapter 2. Now he calls him Matthew. Now, what specifically is this new identity? This identity that works itself out in two vocations. Well, look at Mark chapter 3. We can put this on the screen. If you still have it open, it's probably just a page over Mark chapter 3, verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. And then verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Now, did you see the vocation emerging from that? You see this two-part vocation. It says he called and appointed the 12 that they might do two things. Number one, that they would be with him. Number two, that he would send them out. And as they go out, there's two things. They're going to preach, and they're going to cast out demons. Essentially what that's getting at is he's sending them out in order to bring people back to him. Now, if you want to know what it is to follow Jesus, if you want to know what it is to be a disciple of Jesus, it's, it's these two things, to be with him and to be sent out in order to bring others back to Jesus. That is as simple as it can be put. What is a disciple? Someone who is with him, someone who is sent out to bring people back to him. Now, let me just put a little bit of flesh on that. Because we actually talk about these two vocations, these two callings, these two purposes in life. We talk about that around here all the time. We just use a little bit different language. Uh, But you hear it every Sunday. You hear it in every prayer meeting. You hear it in every Bible study around here. You hear it all the time. And I'm going to say it again, and you're probably going to roll your eyes because we've said it so much, but here's why we say it so much. Because this is what it is to be a disciple. It's up, down, up, and out. We talk about them as four postures of worship, four postures of renewal. It's, it really is just the pattern of what it looks like to grow as a Christian, that you'd walk through those four postures over and over and over again. And so we look up to worship Christ. We look down to confess and to bring our needs and our concerns before God. We're then lifted up as we uh, receive the truth of the gospel. And then we're sent out to live in light of that and to invite others in. Up, down, up, and out. Now, let's just put that framework within the summary that Mark gives us of what it means to follow Jesus. First, to be with Jesus. That's number one. We live out that calling, that vocation, as we do the first three. Up, down, and up. And then to be sent out, that's the fourth one, it's out. And so what does it look like to follow Jesus? It's to be with him and to be sent out to bring others back to him. To be with him is to look up, to worship, to look down, to bring your confession, your concerns, your worries to him, to be lifted up by the truth of the gospel. That's what it is to be with him. And then to be sent out to bring others back in. That's just to take what you've gained from Jesus and bring it to others. And this is what Jesus calls Levi to when he says, follow me. And this is what he's called each and every one of us when he says to you and I, follow me. To be with him and to be sent out. Now, in our next point, we actually see Levi uh, immediately living out this vocation. Immediately, because he invites all of his friends, all the other tax collectors and sinners, he invites them over to his house for a meal. And so that's part two, Jesus calls him. But then lastly, part three, Jesus befriends him. And we see this down in verse 15. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. So follow the thread here. We've gone from Jesus teaching the crowds to walking past Levi's tax collection booth, and now we're in a third location, we're at Levi's house for a meal. And in the ancient world, and I actually don't think it's changed very much today, in the ancient world, to be invited into someone's home for the evening meal, you know, the main meal of the day, is to be invited right into the very center of that person's life. Right in the center of family life, right in the center of that person's life. You're in their home. You're in the place where they live. And so everything in those days actually revolved around the, the evening meal. Now, I remember very distinctly my last uh, week or two on campus uh, when I was finishing up uh, my undergraduate at Bible college, and I remember feeling these mixed emotions of, yay, I'm I'm almost done. A couple weeks left, a few exams, a paper to turn in. This is great. I'm going out to live my life. But then also uh, an emotion of sadness, uh, an emotion of loss, because I knew that I'd be leaving my friends. And I realized, actually, the thing that I would miss the most was not the lectures in the classroom, uh, not the uh, times, you know, hanging out uh, in the gym, um, playing basketball, not the times around the city of Chicago, this amazing city that you could, I wasn't, that's not what I was gonna miss. I was gonna miss the meals in the dining hall. Not the food, not the food, certainly not the food. But the conversations with my friends. And when I reflect back on it, It wasn't those chapel services or lectures or books that I read or papers that I wrote or experiences that I had that shaped me over those four years. What shaped me the most was three meals a day in the dining hall with the same people over and over and over again, sharing life, talking about what we're learning, talking about what we're experiencing, challenging each other, encouraging each other. But sitting over those bland and poorly cooked meals uh, is actually what shaped me into who I am today. And so to eat together like that, every meal for nine months out of the year for four years, that was to be invited into and to invite others into the very center of your life. And there is, I think, a profound truth that who you eat, sorry, who you eat with, (laughs) not who you eat. If you're eating people, there's a different problem. (laughs) A profound truth that who you eat with, this is why grammar is important, the people with whom you eat <laughs> are who you become like. The people with whom you eat, those are the people who you become like. Why is that? It's because meals are relational. They, they bring the barriers down, they're intimate. You know, they're intimate because think about this, as you eat together, you're putting, food in, you're putting something into your body. Food and drink are going into your body. And you're using all your senses in a way that you don't use them in other ways. You know, you don't use all your senses in a business meeting. You only use a couple of them. But when you're eating together, you use them all. You know, you're sharing together the sights, the sounds, the smell, the taste, the touch of your food. You're sharing all of that together. And this is what's so shocking about this part of the passage, because you'll see in verse 16, it says this. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And effectively, what they're saying is, why does he come into contact with people who will contaminate him? You know, We we have some understanding of this. I think you talked a little bit about this last week. But during COVID, we all got used to this idea that if you came into contact with an infected person, you would get contaminated too. And if you found out that you were infected, you had to quarantine yourself so you didn't contaminate others. So we have this understanding that coming into contact with somebody who's infected is a bad thing. Well, the Pharisees, the people who are complaining about Jesus doing this, they also believe that that happened to somebody morally. That if you came into contact with tax collectors and sinners, if you ate with them, if you entered into the center of their lives and they into the center of your life, you become like the people who you invite. So you would become contaminated. You also become a sinner. And actually, if you think about it, the Pharisees have a point. They're not wrong. They're not wrong, because you do become like the people with whom you eat. You do become like the people that you invite into the center of your life. You do become like the people who you enter in the center of their life. But Jesus is different. Jesus is different. Because Jesus is God of very God. God in the flesh. Fully God, fully man. And what that means is Jesus isn't like you and me in this way, Jesus is uncontaminated. It is not possible to contaminate him. In Hebrews it says that he was just like us in every single way and yet was without sin. That he was tempted in every way and never sinned, never was contaminated, never was infected by sin. And so here's what Jesus is doing in that meal he's helping them to become like him. Jesus says, if you invite me into the center of your life, I don't become like you, you become like me. C.S. Lewis calls this a good infection. He wrote uh, in Mere Christianity, he, he's talking about Jesus. Says Jesus came into this world and became a man in order to spread to other men the kind of life he has by what I call good infection every Christian has become a little Christ, the whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. That good infection entering into your life. And this is what Jesus is doing as he comes to have a meal with tax collectors and sinners. He's inviting them into the very center of his life. Now, there's actually two pictures that Jesus gives to the church to repeat that show us how this works, this spreading of the good infection, this having his life enter into yours and your life enter into his. Uh, And one of those pictures is baptism. The picture of baptism is that a person enters into the water, they're plunged under, they're immersed under the water, and then when they come back up, all the old life is washed away and you're, you're something new. The old has died and the new has been born. Now, the actual act itself doesn't save a person, but it's a picture of what being saved is like. And by the way, if you haven't been baptized but you would like to, you want to take that step of obedience, let me know, because we would love to do that with you. That's one picture, but that's a picture you just do one time. Jesus also gave his followers a picture to do as many times as you want, to do it as many times as a group of Christians meets together. And what's that picture? Well, that picture is a meal. It's eating and drinking together. That's something that we call the Lord's Supper. It's a meal. It's communion. Now, again, that's a picture It doesn't save a person, it doesn't keep a person saved, but it's a physical act, a physical picture of an inward spirituality, a spiritual truth that the way a Christian fulfills their calling, a way a Christian lives out their vocation to be with Christ and to be sent out is to invite Jesus into the very center of your being. And so what do we do? We get this, we ingest the bread. We ingest the wine. We bring those things into the very center of our bodies. And then what our bodies do is they take the nourishment of that and they send it all through our whole body, infecting the whole thing. And it's a picture of bringing Christ into the very center of our lives that when he's at the center, he begins to affect everything. His life, his sacrifice for us brought right into our very center. And so it's a meal together that he's given us. And the more that we eat this meal together, the more we become like Christ not just as a sort of rote ritual, there's nothing magical about it, but actually using the meal to invite Christ into the center of your life again and again, week by week by week. And the more that we do that together as a family, as brothers and sisters in Christ, the more we do that around the table together as a church, the more we become like him. The more his life enters into our life, the more that good infection begins to spread. And this is what Jesus is saying when he says, verse 17, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners. And so let's do that now. Let's take the life of Christ into our lives. So you have one of these around you. And before we do that, I do want to give you just a minute to reflect on that. I want to give you just a minute. We'll have a minute just of quiet where you can invite Christ in. Invite him into the areas of your life that maybe you've been keeping from him. There might be places in your life, corners of your life, that you've invited Jesus into others, but not that one. And maybe take this time to invite him in to that space. Or perhaps it's inviting him into your life for the very first time, acknowledging for the first time that you're a sinner. Acknowledging for the first time that that you are actually in need of saving, that you need your sins to be forgiven, and that Christ's sacrificial death on the cross is what allows that to happen, that his death on the cross is what sets you free from sin and death. And so today you can invite him into your life maybe for the first time. So take a moment just now to do that, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus was eating a meal, eating a meal with these 12 followers that he called to be with him, to be sent out. And during that meal, he took some bread, and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is for you. As often as you eat it, do it in remembrance of me. So let's remember him as we ingest this together. And he picked up the cup. And he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood, poured out for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's remember him as we drink together. And then he told him he would not drink of the cup again until he drinks it anew with us. When we are as we will be, with no sin, no brokenness, all of it will be taken away. And so we have that to look forward to. Now there's one last application that I want us to see in this. And it's this. It's that Matthew invited his friends to meet Jesus. He immediately took up that new identity as gift of God, giver of God. He actually did it before he learned anything from Jesus. And so here's the last application for us today. If you have any benefit at all, any benefit at all from having the life of Christ in your life, from your life being in his life, then be a giver of God. Invite your friends into that too. Invite your family, your coworkers. Random people that you meet throughout the day, invite them in, be sent out in order that you can bring others back to him. And and remember this, the only reason you're here today, the only reason you've gotten any benefit from that at all is because somebody invited you one time. Somebody once invited you. And I think you'll be surprised by how many people say yes when we do invite. Uh, Let me pray. Our Father, we thank you for the life of Christ. We thank you for the way the story is told and for this particular story here that that we can see how Jesus saw Matthew, how he called him, how he befriended him, how he brought Matthew into the very center of his life and how Matthew brought Jesus into the center of his. And Lord, I pray that that would be true for each one of us today too, that we would experience that um, all the more after having heard about it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.